0: John, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. So on page 10 in the John's Gospels in front of you. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, now the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have had nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water.
1: A few years back in Vanity Fair magazine, pop legend Madonna described what motivates her in life and it it really is surprising. She says, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre And that's always pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will, she said. Now Madonna is absolutely right, which is not the sort of thing I ever expected myself uh, to say. But anyway, she's absolutely right. And all the while that she's driven by a need to prove herself as someone special, her struggle will probably never end. Now, it's that kind of struggle, that, that struggle to find contentment and meaning in life, which is right at the heart of this story in John chapter 4 that Jamie just read for us. And it's a longing which is right at the heart of the existence of every man and woman who ever walked planet Earth. That need to find that, that something. Into that search for meaning and significance. Listen again to Jesus' words uh, in chapter f- four and verses thirteen and fourteen. Having just met this woman who was on her way to draw water from a well, Jesus said to her, You see at bottom of page ten, verse thirteen, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Now, that's a pretty obvious comment whoever drinks this water, water from a well, will be thirsty again. But then Jesus says something staggering. Verse thirteen Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. It is a stupendous claim. Jesus is talking here about quenching a thirst that is in every single one of us. He's saying that he can satisfy that, that craving, that, that longing for you know, something more. And Jesus is saying that if we try and quench that thirst with anything in time and space, we'll be left thirsty again and again and again. But Jesus says, I can give you something that will quench your deepest thirst both now and forever for eternity. It is an amazing offer, which is uh, relevant for everyone because it's a longing we all have. And that's uh, the first point on on the handout if you're following along. It's a fascinating moment in John's gospel, this is. Um, John, the author of of his gospel, brilliantly positions this incident in chapter 4 alongside the events of chapter 3. And what he does here is, I think, literary genius. In in chapter 3, Jesus meets a very high-ranking man, a Pharisee called Nicodemus. Here in chapter 4, Jesus meets a, a, a very ordinary person, a woman at a well. And these two people, Nicodemus and the woman, are in almost every way poles apart. One is a man, the other's a woman, obviously. One is a Pharisee, a religious person of great standing. The other, a Samaritan, a religious no-hoper. One, Nicodemus, is very moral. In fact, a more upright man you're unlikely to find. The other, the woman, well, we discover that she, uh, well, she is an immorally loose woman. Uh, so much so, she's become something of a social pariah. And then Nicodemus has a name, and this woman, we just know her as the woman at the well. In every way, these two people could not be more different, and the circumstances of their meeting Jesus are poles apart, too. In chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in the dark. This woman met Jesus in the middle of the day. You'll see in verse 6, it was the sixth hour when the Middle Eastern sun would have been beating down. And while Nicodemus went looking for Jesus, the woman was just going about her everyday routine when Jesus approached her. The two, two very different people and the circumstances surrounding their encounter with Jesus about as different as you could imagine. And yet there is one thing that is the same about them both. They are both searching for something. They're both trying to make sense of life. And so do you see what John has done? John has brilliantly positioned them side by side in his gospel, chapter 3 and chapter 4, to demonstrate that whoever we are, Nicodemus or the woman, respected or ostracized, religious or up, and upright or totally immoral, whoever we are, we all have a longing to find that something that makes sense of life. I um, came across a fascinating article in the Sunday Times some years back. It was called The Great Happiness Hunt. Written by the journalist Daisy War, her teenage daughter was listening to Leona Lewis, the X Factor winner, si- uh, uh, winner, singing, I just want to be happy. The, the chorus goes like this. I'm sure you all know it, but just in case you don't. I just want to be happy, happy. I just want to be, oh, I just want to be happy. I know it loses something in the way I recite it. Apparently, it's a good song. Anyway, there's her daughter listening to Leona Lewis sing her heart out. And Daisy War writes, For heaven's sake, I long to shout back. Can't you at least be more specific? I told my daughter that wanting to be happy didn't count as ambition, not in itself. I don't think she believed me. If I'm brutally honest, I'm not sure I believed it either. Uh, but it's the sort of thing parents are meant to tell their children, isn't it? Of course, we all know, she goes on, wanting to be happy has become something of a religion for my generation. The fashion to come up with ever more outlandish ways to achieve personal fulfilment has become ever more frantic. I've lost count of the clever, high-achieving friends I've waved off on their preposterous, back-to-basics, self-actualising adventures, animal counting in Kenya, cheesemaking in Wales, landscape gardening in Melbourne, novel writing in Rome, poverty ameliorating in, in Thailand, compost lavatory building in Spain... Add to that the apparently unending stream of newspaper and magazine articles featuring good-looking English expats ecstatically self-actualizing from their vineyards in France, olive groves in Tuscany, and so on. The question is, of course, did any of these fashionably adventurous people ever find what they were looking for? She says, possibly not, if my own experiences are anything to go by. I've been a fairly feverish, a fairly feverish participant in the great happiness hunt since the moment my parents ceded control. In fact, looking back, it occurs to me I've gone chasing up every blind alley that ever caught my eye. And so a million love songs, egocentric projects, lonely sunspots and disappointing destinations later, here I am back at my desk desk in good old London town, a pile of unopened brown envelopes in one corner and the same inescapable shadow of my own mortality in the other. It doesn't matter where you run, she writes, or which tent you shelter under. It turns out some things just won't go away. It's a refreshingly honest piece, don't you think? We're all searching for something except except some here might well say no no no, i'm not searching for anything i'm not longing for happiness like leona or struggling for meaning like madonna i'm not one of daisy war's friends dashing around the world in search of that missing something no this pursuit of happiness is not an issue for me and that is where this contrast between nicodemus and the woman at the well is so fascinating once again You see, Nicodemus obviously was searching. He approached Jesus. He sought out Jesus. He had questions for Jesus. But this woman, well, there's no obvious searching going on. Look with me how the encounter came about. Chapter 4, verse 3. He, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee and had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour it's not difficult to picture the scene we're in the Middle East it's the middle of the day as I've already mentioned in verse six the sixth hour so the temperature is soaring the sun is beating down and you'll see verse six Jesus is tired from walking so so long in verse eight, John tells us that Jesus' disciples have gone off to find something to eat from, I don't know, the local Greggs or something. And so while Jesus is waiting for them to come back, he takes his weight off, the weight off his feet and verse six sits beside a well. And verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and there you have it. This woman wasn't looking for a deep, meaningful conversation about what life is all about. She was just going about her daily routine fetching water from the well what she did every day day after day fetching water from the well was no more noteworthy than me telling you about my visit to tesco's on saturday to buy some bananas four pints of milk and some crunch, crunching up cornflakes she's just doing what she did every day jumping on the 657 from isha seems she's not searching for anything even when she arrived at the well she didn't start the conversation with jesus no verse seven he spoke to her He asked her for a drink, and so as we meet her, it seems she's not searching for anything until we read on. See, as this woman and Jesus get into conversation, it turns out her whole life has been a search for more. But we'll look at this in more detail next week, but for now, just a glance at verse 18 tells us that she's had a string of failed relationships and now, five marriages later, she's shacked up with a bloke who wasn't her husband. In the movie, Chariots of Fire, it's quite old, but it's a good movie, it tells the story of um, two British athletes in the 1924 Olympics. One of the characters, an Olympic 100-metres sprinter, says this just before running his race. Contentment? I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? That's very telling. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing yeah some people know that they're looking for something even if they don't know what it is others don't even know they're searching and so whether she knew it or not and whether she acknowledged it or not and whether she could articulate it or not it seems this woman had spent her whole life looking for love and acceptance and satisfaction in the arms of men so you see what john is doing he's putting nicodemus and the woman side by side in his gospel and he's saying no matter who we are and whether we realize it or not, we're all searching for meaning and satisfaction. And John is saying a search, that is a search that will only ever find its end when we meet Jesus. And ah, that's our second point on the handout, a longing met only in Jesus. See, as this woman arrives at the world, Jesus does something brilliantly simple, yet deeply profound. Uh, Simply, he asks her for a drink. We've seen that in verse 7. But brilliantly, he used this woman's daily need for water as a picture, a metaphor, if you like, of her whole life and of her thirst for life. So halfway through verse 7, Jesus said, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman was kind of taken aback by that. You see, verse 9, she said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, For, John helpfully explains, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It seems Jesus broke all the social conventions of the day. And this woman wonders who he is to do that. And Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's brilliant. Of course it is. It's Jesus. But you see, in just two sentences, Jesus takes this woman from going about her everyday routine to talking about the deepest and most important issues that are at the heart of the existence of everyone who's ever lived she's getting drinking water and he talks about living water water that is so very different from the water we get from a well or a tap or or even the bottled water we buy because it's so been so brilliantly marketed by evian or highland spring this water even highland spring water at 1 pound 10 pence a bottle only temporarily quenches our physical thirst Jesus offers living water, water that quenches our spiritual thirst permanently in this life and the next. And, of course, what is true of physical water is true of anything we drink of in life. It always leaves us thirsty again. For this woman, it was um, relationships with men. For us, it might be relationships. It could be something else. Career, believing that it'll give me status and significance to make me somebody or materialism and hedonism, thinking that real estate or holidays or cars or early retirement or a trip around the world will quench my thirst. And for a time it does, like physical water. When we drink these other things, our thirst is quenched for a while, but before we know it, we're thirsty again. I reckon this is often what is behind, uh, what lies behind a midlife crisis, Uh, suddenly half your life is gone in terms of health and fitness the best years of your life gone Uh, you wake up one day and you look in the mirror and you realize you have a furniture problem you know with your chest in your drawers uh, and you wonder what do I have to look forward to now midlife is the point in life when you've either reached a level in your career that you always aimed for or you begin to realize your dreams will never be uh, never be realized if you've achieved you get that empty so what feeling If you haven't achieved, you begin to fear that that elusive something is always going to be out of reach. So you begin to feel the frustration of it all. You've worked your socks off and still there's that nagging feeling that you you just haven't found that what's missing. Maybe you never will. That is such a lonely place to be. And such a hard thing to admit because all your life, everyone around you has been telling you that what you're chasing after is what life's all about. This pursuit of career or stuff or whatever. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I think I might have quoted this a few weeks back, but I think it's bears, bears uh, quoting again. Most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Uh, The Christian author and preacher, Tim Keller, explains that every time we have that that feeling of disappointment, one of four things can happen. Firstly, we can blame the things. We look at our successes and we say, I've made it, so why am I not satisfied? Why am I so unhappy? And we think to ourselves, well, it must be that I'm in the wrong job, or I bought the wrong house, or I married the wrong wife, and so people keep changing their mates and their houses and their careers. We're saying all the time, it must be the things. I need new things. So we blame the things, or second, we blame ourselves. I'm unhappy because I haven't achieved. I've made bad choices. I should never have married that person or taken that job. We blame the things. We blame ourselves. Third, says Keller, we blame the universe. So we say, oh, I've just come to realize that, that you, you know, you, you, you can't expect anything out of this life. I've just given up trying to be happy. And You become cynical. Like a grumpy old man, you rob everyone else of their excitement in life. You blame the things, you become a fool, thinking it's just that you haven't got the right thing yet. You blame yourself, you become depressed. You blame the universe, you become a misery to everyone around. Or fourth, says Keller, you can blame your separation from God. I cannot find satisfaction in this world because I was built for another world. The reason I'm so thirsty is because I'm made for eternal life, but I'm trying to satisfy my thirst in temporal things. That's what Jesus is showing this woman. And so he engages her in conversation. As he does that, Jesus puts two things on the agenda. He says, he says do you know who I am? And do you know what I alone can give you? So in verse 9, the woman wonders why Jesus, a Jewish man, has broken all social conventions and spoken to her. And in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked her, asked him, and he would have given you living water. If only you knew who you were speaking to. See what Jesus is saying? If only you knew who I was, you'd be asking me to give the gift that will satisfy your deepest longings. And if you're here this lunchtime looking into what Christianity is all about, well, look, thanks so much for coming. And may I suggest that this is the place to start, to consider who Jesus is. And Jesus is making an offer that I reckon is too good not to consider. So would you begin by asking, who is Jesus? Who is he to be making this staggering, thirst-quenching offer? Well, that's what the woman wants to know, verse 11. You see, the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where'd you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So you see, she's asking, Jesus, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than our forefather, our founding father Jacob? I was trying to think what a parallel would be, a bit like um, Jesus talking today to a, a patriotic U.S. citizen, offering them a world that completely outshines the great American dream. And then they might ask, who are you? Are you greater than our founding fathers? Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, Hamilton, Madison. That's verse 12, isn't it? Who are you? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Jesus quite clearly thinks that he is greater than Jacob and Washington and Gandhi and Marx and Confucius and anyone else who's ever given any indication that they might know what life is all about. Jesus thinks he's greater than them all and that's clear from what he says next. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, is where we started, everyone who drinks of this water, water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It is staggering. It's a claim to be divine. A claim to be able to satisfy our deepest longings and be able to give us the most satisfying life forever, beyond the grave. Now, either Jesus is completely off his head, or here is God coming into the world and saying, verse 10, if only you knew who I am, You'll ask me for the gift that only God can give to you, living water. End of verse 14, water that springs up to eternal life. Thirst quenching water that lasts beyond this life so that even death can't take it from you. Now that's the offer. And if you've never tasted this water from Jesus, let me in the last few moments tell you why it's such a great offer. Before I do that, a word to the many here who already have tasted this living water. If you're already a committed Christian, let me encourage you to hold your nerve. This tells us that everyone around us is searching. Even those who look like they're satisfied, even those who tell us they're happy with their lot in life. God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women, and nothing temporal will satisfy the eternal. So keep praying for your friends and your colleagues and keep inviting them to hear about Jesus. Hold your nerve. And hold your nerve because if you're anything like me, you'll often be tempted to think that your thirst will be quenched somewhere else. I've been a Christian for over 40 years, but I still find myself thinking that other things might satisfy me. They won't. So let's hold our nerve. And coming back to those of us who've never tasted this water from Jesus, look again at one particular detail in verse 14 that might kind of just begin to unpack it for us. Jesus offers water from a spring. See, a spring that kind of bubbles up, that wells up, bubbles up to eternal life. It's in contrast to the water the woman had gone to draw, water from a well. And the difference between a well and a spring is immense. A well is actually a cistern. It collects water. If there's a drought, it'll eventually dry up. If you want, you could fill in a well, fill it with all kinds of rubble and rubbish and build on top of it, and that would be the end of it. But a spring is different. It's impossible to stop it. You can throw rubble and dirt in it and and, and try to build on it, and and still the, the spring of water will break through. It keeps bubbling up. You can't get rid of it. See, when you have Jesus... When you have this spring of living water in your life, it doesn't mean that all the rubbish has gone in your life. It doesn't mean that from then on you never feel hurt or dissatisfied or let down by life. It doesn't mean that you never chase after other things. But it does mean that you can never stop this thirst quenching water in your life from bubbling up. If you'll forgive me being autobiographical for a moment, i found this again and again. I, I keep finding myself distracted. I keep looking to other things to find, dis, to find satisfaction. But with Jesus, even when, like me, you get, you get it wrong and get things out of perspective, and even when you start to put other rubbish in your life and run after all these other things that don't quench your thirst, all this rubbish on top can't stop the spring of eternal life bubbling up and breaking through. So with Jesus, when you're confused, clarity bubbles up and breaks through. When you're despairing, hope bubbles up. When you're distressed, you find peace breaking through. And most wonderful of all, when you die, this living water revives you to eternal life. See, when you have Jesus, no matter how much junk comes into your life, whether it be through your own bad decisions or the knocks of the world or the hurts that others bring, no matter how much rubbish is thrown into your heart, living water Bubbles up through, giving you hope and joy and peace and clarity and direction and meaning and satisfaction and contentment and eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Something that's different, completely different from anything you can get in this life. Our key verse is verse 13: Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water, water from the well, will be thirsty again. But Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, look, my time has gone. We'll look at more of this next time. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there aren't a number here this lunchtime who are saying, you know, I I really want that water. don't want to wait till next week. Well, if that's you, then then just do what the woman did in verse 15. The woman said to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. You'll have to come here to draw water. Just a simple prayer. If you're longing for this water, just say to Jesus, please give me this water. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. Let's pray together. Well, let me leave... Uh, a little time of silence. And if you want to pray that prayer, then just do. Please give me this water. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. Our Father, we thank you very much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in him, all this sort of searching for what life's all about can end. And while we know that following him is not a bed of roses, it's not all easy, we we do want to thank you that as we follow him, uh, we've not only found life and the meaning of life now, but life eternal. And we pray, please, you'd help those of us who already know this to keep going um, with him. And those who don't, please give them the, everything they need, the courage, the boldness, the information that they need to be able to turn to you and start following the Lord Jesus for themselves.